0: This is the IEEE USA Inside Podcast, Episode 14. A monthly program featuring news, information, and updates from IEEE USA headquarters in Washington, D.C. And now your host, Chris McMains. Thank you, John. Hello, listeners. I appreciate
1: you sharing part of your day with us. Whether you're at home or taking a summer vacation, Here's some IEEE USA news for you. Robots probably won't be taking over the world anytime soon, but on June 9th, they took over a room on Capitol Hill. Members of Congress, congressional staffers, and others gathered to celebrate the five-year anniversary of the National Robotics Initiative, or NRI. The program is designed to spur the use and development of robots that work beside or cooperatively with people. The NRI is a collaboration among the National Science Foundation, NASA, NIH, and the Departments of Agriculture, Defense, and Energy. Event attendees learned how robotic researchers are, among other things, using mind-controlled robots to help stroke victims, while other robots are making it safer and easier for the visually impaired to get around. IEEE USA is a member of the Congressional Robotics Caucus, which is calling on Congress to continue funding this groundbreaking research through the NRI. The candidates for 2017 IEEE president-elect are two outstanding individuals. Jim Jeffries and Wanda Reeder are campaigning now to become IEEE president in 2018. Jeffries is an IEEE Life senior member and former IEEE USA president. Reader is an IEEE fellow and former president of the IEEE Power and Energy Society. If you'd like to learn more about them, check out Monica Rosenfeld's story in the Institute, entitled, Get to Know the Candidates for 2017 President-Elect. Ballots are sent to IEEE members in mid-August. They must be returned by mail or electronically by October 3rd. Make sure you cast your ballot for IEEE
2: president-elect
1: and candidates running for other positions.
2: Now it's time for IEEE USA eBook Corner, highlighting new, free, and existing IEEE USA eBooks available to IEEE members. The title says it all. Rewarding your employees in tight salary times is a problem to which almost any manager can relate. After all, finding a way to show genuine appreciation to deserving employees isn't always possible. But author Harry T. Roman believes that with planning and a little creativity, managers can reward key and special employees, even when the budget won't allow it or they've topped out in their positions. In Volume 1, Some Basic Techniques of this new IEEE USA ebook series, the veteran engineering professional and educator describes strategies that he promises will keep valued employees feeling appreciated as well as motivated. More significant than, say, giving someone their own reserved parking space for a month, Roman's techniques are designed to keep people wanting to stay rock solid in their manager's corner. To begin with, Roman recommends that all managers should get to know their employees well. For instance, he writes, Do you know what issues at work get them into a rolling boil? What keeps them at their jobs and liking it? Do they have a flair for creating new ideas and moving to implement them by their own initiative? He also suggests that managers answer this rhetorical question about each person who reports to them. If you gave them resources and authority beyond what they have now, what might be, be they inclined to do? Roman says these facts are especially important to know about special or high-performing employees. At some future point, company circumstances may prevent you from rewarding them with a conventional salary increase or bonus, he says. What will you do to keep these important people wanting to stay the course? Rewarding Your Employees in Tight Salary Times, Volume 1, Some Basic Techniques, is available at shop.ieeeusa.org. The member price is $4.99. Non-IEEE members can purchase it for $7.99. I'm Georgia Stelluto for IEEE USA.
0: In the IEEE USA Insights Spotlight, Chris talks with Dr. Robert Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. He is an internationally recognized scholar and one of the leading authorities on global innovation trends. They discuss the state of innovation and productivity in the United States, the need for more robotics research and development, and the controversial H-1B visas program. Well, Rob, thank you very much for
1: joining me today. I uh, greatly enjoyed hearing you speak to our research and development policy committee. And Rob, you are the founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, and I understand you just celebrated your 10th anniversary. Yeah, well, thank you
3: for having me. Yes, we just, we just did. Uh, we were established uh, 10 years ago uh, in 2006, and uh, look forward to hopefully another good 10 years at, at minimum.
1: Now, what inspired you to found ITIF? Why did you think it was important?
3: Well, I'd been in Washington for many, uh, many years, initially at the National Institute of Standards of Technology, then at the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment, then at another think tank. And uh, as I looked at the um, evolution or changes in technology and and what was happening, um, uh, two things. One, I was incredibly excited about how technology is such a powerful driver of improvements in our life. And then secondly... How little attention there was, or not enough attention, and, and, and that we really, I felt, needed a, a voice, a policy voice for innovation in Washington that was nonpartisan, that would work with both sides of the aisle to advocate for the kinds of policies that would help get more innovation, including in uh, information technology, electrical engineering, and similar fields.
1: Now, you recently participated in an event that we sponsored last week on Capitol Hill the uh, National Robotics Initiative five-year anniversary. I know you were one of our panelists and we had speakers from NSF and uh, other agencies. And what is your overall thought on the uh, the the initiative, the NRI?
3: Yeah, so we uh, just released a, a, a very big report slash small uh, Kindle ebook book um, called Think Like an Enterprise, the Case for a National Productivity Strategy. And we, we we argue that productivity is a big um, is a big challenge for the us it's been it's been lagging behind and if we don't get strong productivity growth we can't get strong increases in in wages and standard of living and when you look at sort of how do we do that with technology uh, you really pretty quickly get to robotics as, as a as a kind of core technology for future productivity gains over the next two decades uh, and yet you know robotics aren't at where they need to be. There have been a lot of improvements, but we still need a lot more improvements. And so the NRI, uh, I think, is a good initiative to get there. My main complaint about NRI is uh, it's underfunded. Um, you know, Other countries are putting in place uh, at, at a per GDP basis 10, 20 times more than we're funding this. And uh, so we really have to, you know, robotics is going to be super important for a whole wide array of things, whether it's taking care of the agent or automating things, and we should be putting a lot more money into it.
1: Now, unfortunately, when most people think of robotics, they think of robots replacing them in in their job or replacing, you know, a lot of jobs in our economy. And a lot of people are very fearful of that.
3: You know, it's interesting. We wrote a released a report a couple of years ago called Robots, Do They Take or Make Jobs? And, and it's, it, it's unfortunate mythology out there that we should fear robots because of jobs. In fact, the evidence from economics, from both logic, from history, is that higher levels of productivity lead to higher job creation and lower rates of unemployment. And we shouldn't worry about this now. What what we should worry about, if we worry about anything, is that certain individuals may ha- lose a job, and, and we need to do a much better job of helping them transition. But the idea that, and unfortunately, that some people are claiming that you know mass uh, robotics uh, you know will lead to very high levels of unemployment is just utter nonsense. Really, it's just it, it's fear mongering. It's going to lead to people resisting these kinds of innovations. Um, you know, robots are just so important. Uh, if if we're going to raise our standard living, why haven't wages grown? Much well, a new report from the Federal Reserve Bank that shows that you know, wages have grown some, somewhat in line with productivity, but productivity has not been growing. So that's why we really shouldn't worry about the job loss question. We should worry about job transitions. Um, but you know, the other thing too, frankly, you know, you look at the evidence. A lot of companies that adopt robots um, actually hire more workers because they gain global market share. Uh, there 's actually a good correlational a little study we did that showed that countries with more robot uh, density in manufacturing have a higher share of manufacturing workers and growth than com- company, countries like the u s which has less robot density
1: so speaking of manufacturing what is what do you think is the current state of u s manufacturing? Have we lost too much of our industrial base uh, or or are we regaining it or what so We've done a lot of
3: work on that, and I think, unfortunately, there's a, there's a kind of common perception that all the job loss in manufacturing, uh, almost 5.5 million jobs in the 2000-year period, was due to superior productivity. And well, the evidence that we have and other people that look at this carefully suggest that's not the case. Maybe half of those jobs were lost because of higher productivity in manufacturing, but most of them were lost due to just the U.S. not being competitive in manufacturing as much as we could be, and a lot of jobs moving to China or Mexico or other places. Um, I don't think the good news is that that hemorrhaging appears to be gone. Um, Maybe we're getting one job back for every job we still offshore. Who knows what those numbers are. They're better than they were, but we should be getting two or three jobs Created or back for every job we're offshoring, and we're not doing that. Um, so we we did lose a lot, and we didn't just lose Happy Meal toy production. Um, you know there were important technology, com- complex technology productions that we lost, and um, we've got to do a better job of bringing that back. Because because you do get to a, a, a tipping point. Um, you know there's an, an what Gary Pisano at Harvard uh, calls an industrial commons, and if you start losing pieces of that, you, know, you look at the, look at the decision by uh, oh, was it, uh, shoot, uh, sorry, um, the Indiana company, maybe it was trained. I think moved in, moved. And one of the things they said, why are we moving? Is because a lot of the suppliers now are down there. So you get to these tipping points with supplier systems and everything, and, and, and if you get too far down that path, it becomes a lot harder. We're not there yet, but we could be there if we don't really get our act together.
1: Now, during World War II, the, the Ford Motor Company was was very key in well they became the company that was building the b-24 liberator bombers which were largely credited with uh tipping the war in the favor of the united states and and its allies and do we still have that capability to do something like that um
3: it depends on the industry but at one level no um now partly that's because back then we were dominant and everybody else, a lot of other countries were weaker. But still, um, I don't see any reason why the U.S. shouldn't be the un- unalloyed leader in technology, uh, high technology production, uh, advanced manufacturing, whatever you want to call it. We should be the leader. There are whole segments of the industries that we've lost. Uh, for example, uh, machine tools, uh, uh solar uh, certainly solar uh, production whole whole that we shouldn't have lost and um and i think it 's worth us trying to really figure out how to get that back we 've laid out a whole agenda and a number of different ideas, some of which have are moving and, and being considered seriously uh, on the hill. The president has uh, i think wisely adopted an idea we pushed for called the national network of manufacturing innovation these public private research early stage generic research hubs around technologies like advanced uh, sorry like digital manufacturing or 3D printing or lightweight materials but again, compared to our competitors, we're not putting anywhere near the resources into these kinds of efforts.
1: One thing that I think is very admirable about ITIF is that you seem to be pretty uh, down the middle politically. You don't favor one side over the other. And uh, how are you uh, How are you able to uh, walk that tightrope?
3: So uh, one of the things we're pretty proud of in the last couple of years, um, the number of times we've been asked to testify before congress i, I think the democrats have invited us uh, pretty much equally as the number as republicans so we're not seeing uh, uh, it depends on the issue if, if we're aligned on an issue maybe more on the democratic side they'll invite us But more on the republican side they'll invite us but look our view is that these these questions are uh you know they're so important and each each side of if you will the political aisle first of all they have some good insights uh, Republicans tend to be a little better on general with, you know, things like uh, getting the right tax code for innovation, uh, making sure we don't uh, overregulate innovators and innovation. Uh, Democrats, again, as a general rule, a little bit better sometimes on public investment and things like R&D and STEM education, things like that. But at the same time, you know, there there, there are people in Congress at our event, 10-year ten, ten anniversary. We had two great members yesterday, Senator Cory Gardner, a Republican from Colorado, Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from uh, Delaware. And, you know, you you talk to – you listen to them at our event, which is, by the way, on itif.org. Uh, you would be hard-pressed to say if you didn't know which one was a Republican and which one was a Democrat because they're talking about issues that there's a, some consensus on.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I think IEEE USA and ITIF have a lot of common agreement, especially as we talked about a little bit earlier, robotics, the Internet of Things, uh, promoting U.S. innovation and competitiveness. The one area where we seem to have some disagreement is on the H-1B temporary visas. Uh, you're on record as uh, calling for, you know, an uh, an increase uh, up to 300,000, whereas now there's a, a limit of 65,000 plus 20,000 for uh, graduates of us universities and then of course there's an unlimited amount for uh, for research institutions and educational institutions but i was just wondering wh- what what do you really like about the h1b program
3: well i i think a better way to look at it is what do we like about uh you know high skill stem education particularly with people with a master's or a phd that's really the question we received a grant from a foundation recently or last year to do a study on what was called the demography of u.s innovation where we were able to survey over a thousand engineers and scientists who were involved in triadic patents uh who were involved in uh, R&D 100 awards and we asked them where'd you go to school uh, are you a man are you a woman what race are you uh, how old are you and, and where did you grow up um, and it was fascinating uh mostly men, uh mostly white men, which is a real problem I think a real challenge um, but thirty two percent were not born in this country, and forty seven percent uh their parents were not born in this country, so to us, that means that there 's a lot of talent overseas that wants to come here who are really skilled engineers, computer scientists, biologists, whatever we should be more open to. That. I think one of the challenges with H-1B is it, it, it's, uh, it's a tool to do that because the green card tool is so limited. And so I think in a, in, in a place we would agree on, and we've been very active on that, and we should really expand the green card method or uh, avenue. I think when you do that, the pressure to go through the H-1B becomes a lot less.
1: I think we uh we can find agreement on that for sure. Yeah. Uh, we're advocating for for more green cards, make it easier for people who especially people that get their degrees here, if they if they want to stay, we would like to keep their innovative creative minds here in the United States creating jobs. Whereas of course with the H1B, it's a it's a temporary visa. It it's tough to get into that queue t- for the green card and and you know you're 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 not a free agent in the market. You're limited. You're beholden to the company that actually holds the visa.
3: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that yeah, there are some problems about the sort of non-free agent part, um, and and certainly you know the problem when when, when somebody's here with a you know getting a, a, you know a PhD in uh, mechanical engineering or whatever or electrical, um, you know. We'd love to keep them, I think, as a country, but it's not just that. If they just sort of went off and became an English major somewhere, it's like, okay. No, they go off and use their skills oftentimes in another country to compete against us, and so it's a double win for us if we can keep them.
1: hmm Is there anything else you uh, would like to tell us about yourself or about ITIF that you think would be of interest to our listeners? Well, I guess really just the
3: last thing is um, – you know, the good news, I guess, at least in terms of Washington, I think, is, you know, there's a growing recognition that innovation and particularly engineering-based innovation as opposed to just pure science innovation, that engineering, by the way, I really do think, uh, and by the way, IEEE, we have great respect for all the work you do, but I do think there's sort of a science bias in Washington, and it really doesn't respect engineering, doesn't understand engineering and how critically important engineering is, you know, you can't just do science, and I think that's particularly important for the U.S. because, if you really look at our comparative advantage, it's, it's kind of science. You know, we're, we're the best science country in the world. We can take scientific ideas, turn them into great startups. There are other countries that are really good at engineering, like Korea, like Germany, increasingly China. You can't be a strong tech con- economy unless you've got great engineering and, and robust engineering. So I guess one thing I guess I would just say is it's really important for your members um, to, you know, let that voice be known because uh, – Washington works sometimes, uh, as it's a democracy of the loudest voices, and if they're basically hearing about things like gun control and uh, abortion or health care, that's where they're going to put their attention. And if they think that you know they get a free vote by not, in, not supporting an increase in um, engineering education funding or funding for some of the big engineering R&D programs, and they get a free vote on that and that people aren't going to be upset uh, that they didn't do an increase, that matters.
1: Well, I thank you for bringing up that topic of uh, science versus engineering, whereas certainly rocket science is very important. It's rocket engineers that get those space vehicles uh, to and from space. So, and virtually
3: every other area. Uh, it's the engineers that turn the knowledge into actionable things. Uh, and, you know, we lose sight of that way too often
1: and we're so dependent on engineering every day uh this this studio that we're in this recording equipment that we're using the vehicle that brought you here whether it was on a uh, metro a a cab uh whatever we know that uh engineering is is very much a part of of our lives and uh, helps to make the world a yeah, better place yeah.
3: so. I mean, one of the points we made in a report recently on on STEM education uh, called refueling the US economy we noted that um uh, the most important sort of disciplines, if you will, and just in terms of numbers, which is computer science and engineering, by and large are absent in high schools in this country. Uh, in a little bit here and there, but you know we don't even teach engineering in high schools. And if you want to do first robotics, you got to do it after school. What does that say? What kind of message is that
1: sending? You're exactly right. Rob, I, I greatly thank you for your time. We could easily continue for a lot longer, but, uh, you know, we, we both have some other things to do, and I know our listeners do, too. So thank you very much, and I hope you will rejoin us again.
3: Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's all for today's podcast. I'm Chris McMaines in Washington, wishing you and your family a great day.
0: This has been the IEEE USA Insight Podcast. Join us again next month as we take a look at news, information, and updates from IEEE USA. If you have feedback you'd like to share, please connect with us by commenting on our IEEE USA Insight article, send us email at insightpodcast at IEEE USA.org, visit Facebook at facebook.com slash IEEE USA, or Twitter at IEEE USA. I'm John Yuglensky. Thanks for tuning in.